Hello and welcome back to my podcast, Why Me? I'm your host, Jake. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Andrew Ekblad about mindfulness meditation. Listen to this episode if you want to learn what mindfulness meditation is, what some of the benefits are, and how it can help us deal with challenging thoughts and emotions. Enjoy. So hello and welcome back. Uh, this is episode 22, and I'm here again with Dr. Andrew Ekblad, and today we're going to talk about mindfulness. So to start off, Andrew, how do you define mindfulness, and what are some of the benefits of mindful meditation? Sure. So um, a common definition of mindfulness, I mean, people might use different definitions, um, but a common definition that is used in the number of cognitive and behavioral interventions that have been created uh, really in the going back to the 80s, so the last several decades, there's a definition that was originally coined by John Kabat-Zinn, Mm-hmm. who's a researcher who created mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is an eight-week formal mindfulness program, and was really the first mindfulness-based intervention that had empirical results. The definition that he uses that other researchers and treatment developers since, uh, since his original use of, have also used is paying attention on purpose in the present moment non-judgmentally. So it's really important that mindfulness from this definition is uh, it's about attention, okay? So it's about a certain kind of attention on purpose, meaning it's not accidental, um, in the present moment. So you're focusing on the present moment. Now, it's important to highlight that sometimes in the present moment, you're thinking about the future or the past. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you're, you're trying to be intentional about it when you do it. And then the non-judgmental piece is really about trying to avoid slipping into categories like good and bad, right and wrong, fair and unfair, and really just sort of seeing the present moment, seeing whatever is going on around you and within you as just that thing. So right right now I am late for the meeting and I notice feeling disappointed about that. So those might be things that are going on. I'm late for the meeting. I'm disappointed about it. And it's a disaster and everybody thinks I'm an idiot. Is um, those sort of extra interpretations are not part of what's going on. They're just interpretations. They're not reflections of the truth. And those are the kinds of things that mindfulness-based interventions are, are trying to address, trying to reduce our tendency to get stuck on interpretations like that. And I, I like what you said about, you know, non-judgmental and not thinking it as good as bad or bad, because I think that a lot of people have this misconception that meditation is all about clearing your head and not thinking about anything. And, you know, as you said, that's really not the goal. Yeah, I mean, it, that's not the goal at all. And I do think that sometimes people have that impression of mindfulness and you know maybe that's sort of a state that sometimes people reach very briefly mm-hmm. um, but overall that is from my perspective a real misconception of what you're 
trying to go for. The emphasis on present moment attention is really important. Sometimes in the present moment, we have to pay attention to things that are really difficult. And so I, I think that sometimes people will assume that those who practice mindfulness or that a mindfulness practice is about relaxation. Right. And one of the ways that I think of the relationship between mindfulness and relaxation is that feeling relaxed is sometimes a happy byproduct of focusing on one thing at a time. Right. So sometimes it's something that just sort of happens. Uh, feelings of relaxation will happen when we try to um, focus on one thing at a time and try to focus on not getting stuck in our interpretation. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, if you're paying attention to a present moment where there's a lot of disappointment, there are painful memories from the past or strong fears about the future coming up, it's not reasonable to expect that that's going to feel relaxing. So it's important to remember that mindfulness is about present moment attention, and sometimes that means attending to a present moment that is unpleasant and maybe even very painful. Um, sometimes people will say, well, I got distracted, or I have some difficult emotions come up, so right. I must have not been doing it right. right. And from my perspective, when you have those challenging things coming up, you are being mindful, you are attending to mm -hmm. what is happening, and that's what mindfulness is all about. Right. If you feel relaxed or happy or whatever, great. And at the same time, the goal is not just to feel that way. Right. Okay, great. And could you talk a little bit about some of the benefits of, of meditation? Sure. So it can be important to distinguish between mindfulness and meditation. So right. mindfulness is this quality of attention. Meditation, and there's there's a million different kinds of meditation, so I don't want to say that, you know, meditation is this or is that. Right. Um, but mindfulness meditation is a way of, you might think of it as a technique for cultivating this kind of attention. Right. Um, and so mindfulness-based interventions, which, again, have kind of spun up in the 80s, 90s, and the early part of this century, have been, I don't know, kind of emphasized in North America and the UK, even though they're emphasizing practices that might be borrowed from other cultures. Right. And these psychosocial interventions that weave in and emphasize mindfulness have been found to uh, reduce anxiety, reduce depression, reduce different kinds of impulsivity, you know, um, including but not limited to self-harm and suicide attempts. Um, and so there's also a lot of research showing that Mindfulness can have a positive impact on improving the quality of life for people suffering with chronic pain right. and other chronic uh, physical health difficulties. So there's a lot more research that needs to be done. Yeah. And at the same time, at this stage, there is quite a bit of um, preliminary research suggesting that mindfulness practice and the cultivation of this skill is something that has positive benefits um, 
emotionally, cognitively, uh, behaviorally, and uh, and physically on people's physical health. Mm. Well, it, it's it's so true, and there's a lot of articles and you know self help books and all these things that are quoting all of these benefits, and it makes mindful meditation seem almost like a a wonder drug. And one thing that that I've kind of noticed is, as you said, the goal of mindfulness is not to clear thoughts, it's not to feel relaxed, it's not to feel all these benefits, but often people will read these articles or books saying how great mindfulness is, and then they start doing, you know, mindful meditation because they want to feel these benefits. But if you're doing them with the intention of getting these benefits, you're not, how do you, how do you manage that? Well, yeah, there's a paradox there, right? Because mindfulness meditation requires effort, and at the same time, if you're too preoccupied with the effort, you're not going to get anything out of it. Um, right. If you're too preoccupied with, I have to feel this way, yeah. that's going to get, maybe it's too strong to say you're not going to get anything out of it, but, but certainly preoccupation with a certain outcome is going to maybe get in the way right. of experiencing maximal benefits. So, so there's a paradox there that I don't know that that paradox can be fully solved. Yeah. You wouldn't, you know, why would you, why would you do something that requires effort if you're not expecting a benefit? Right. And at the same time, if you're focused too much on that benefit, that might distract you from cultivating the acceptance that my, that is a, a kind of key ingredient of mindfulness right. and acceptance of that you might get some benefits and you might not get other benefits. Right. I think that um, overall, what what might keep a lot of people going is a sense of this is helpful, and at the same time, there you know, what is helpful might be, might include an acceptance that there are limits to how much you can change the challenges in your life. And so while in some ways mindfulness might reduce some difficulties that someone has, another thing that mindfulness really does is it helps people change their relationship with certain difficulties. So, for instance, someone might think, if I have certain thoughts, that's a really bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the thought, I'm a loser or something like that. And what somebody might learn with my, and so they might say, well, I want to practice mindfulness so I don't have that thought anymore. Well, mindfulness might not reduce that thought very much. I mean, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't, but you know, another thing that I think happens for a lot of people is a mindfulness practice can help people change their relationship with that thought. Right. So while the thought might still be there, and while it might be nice if the thought weren't there, what if you started to regard it as just this thing that came up sometimes, mm-hmm. rather rather than an accurate reflection of who you are, who the world is, whatever so I think that sometimes the benefit is in gaining peace with 
not having certain outcomes. Right. Right. It, it's, it's more about cultivating acceptance. Right. Great. So you mentioned that you did, you did some research and you did your thesis on mindfulness and mindful meditation. What were you researching? Yeah, so we did, um, and this was with some collaborators down at the Duke University Med Center, they have a really strong mindfulness-based stress reduction program Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, very, very well-trained, very strong people. One of the leaders of that program and leaders in the area is Dr. Jeff Brantley, who's written some, some really strong books about mindfulness. And so we had people go through a course of mindfulness-based stress reduction. Mindfulness-based stress reduction, again, created by John Kabat-Zinn. And it is a very structured eight-week formal mindfulness exercise. So it takes place in a group. 10 to 20 people go to the group. And once a week, it's two hours to two and a half hours. And about half of that group is a formal mindfulness practice. So it's a really heavy dose of mindfulness for people who don't have previous experience in practicing. Right. You know, other other programs like dialectical behavior therapy, which is a, a big part of of my um, of my practice and of my work with people, mindfulness is really emphasized in dialectical behavior therapy and at the same time there might be five minutes of formal practice out of a two-hour group. Right. Whereas in mindfulness-based stress reduction and a related intervention called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, it's a big chunk of time. It could be 45 minutes to an hour, and then outside of that group, participants are asked to practice their own formal mindfulness exercise, um, exercises that they learn in a group, at least 45 minutes a day, at least six days a week. Yeah. So this is, a, this is a group that asks a lot of people. It is a heavy dose of formal mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. And so what we did was we had folks go through this group. And at the time, this is, uh, this is more than 10 years ago now. So the field has, has obviously come a, a way since then. Right. But what we were finding in the research at the time was that a lot of people up to that point were doing uh, self-report research. Uh, which is very, very valuable. And so you put somebody through a mindfulness intervention mm-hmm. and then you ask them about how they're feeling. Are they feeling more emotionally regulated? Is there an impact on their anxiety and things like that? So that's a, a really valuable place with the research. And we wanted to continue that research and then on top of that add a behavioral, a couple of behavioral Assessments, And so the idea with the behavioral assessment was beyond what people are saying about how they're feeling, are they actually responding to situations differently? Right. And so what we did was we had one of our key um, measures was an experience, uh, experimental measure where we have people do this computer exercise on a computer that was designed to be frustrating, very frustrating, sort of set up like a, like a math task, an right. addition task, and at the same time, it was virtually impossible to do and then would speed up while you were doing it and made awful sounds that right. every time you got something wrong and you started getting more and more things wrong, 
so it was designed and was very effective um, at frustrating people. Right. So we have people go through that mm-hmm. before and after doing NBSR. And what we found was that they uh, they became less distressed going through mindfulness-based stress reduction. And then another important piece was that they calmed down faster afterward. Mm. So, and this is this is compared to a waitlist group. So, um, wow. we we put people through the experiment before and afterward. They became less distressed and they calmed down faster compared to a waitlist group where there was not much change from um, from the first time point to the second time point. That's well, that's amazing. That's really cool. So. Another question that I had was, you know, one thing now is that there are a lot of resources out there for mindfulness meditation. There's apps, there's books, there's CDs, all kinds of things. So how do we decide which ones we should try? Yeah, and I mean, I think it's a really good question because I I kind of think of my job as a psychologist is... I think the, the vast majority of my job is getting people, how do I get people to do things that I think would be helpful, mm-hmm. which is different from how do I come up with another thing for people to try? Right. Usually people effectively using a few different skills, and by a few I mean, you know, three, five, ten, probably not more than ten, right. um, is going to have a lot more positive impact in someone's life than them learning 50 or 100 or Absolutely. something like that. Yeah. And it's the same thing with mindfulness practice where on the one hand, the proliferation of discussion and books and media and apps and all that kind of stuff is is great. It's exciting. On the other hand, I also know that, um, you know, probably a lot of people, and I know that I've suffered from this myself at times, sometimes I'll be consuming more media related to mindfulness and meditation mm-hmm. than I am actually practicing. Absolutely. And so there's a there's a danger that quote unquote learning about something will get in the way of actually meaningfully and experientially engaging with it. So that's something that I really like about mindfulness based stress reduction is yeah, you talk about mindfulness, but a big, big part of it is actually practicing during the group. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one one thing that I recommend to a lot of people is I recommend the Headspace app. Yeah. And this is something that in, in one of our other conversations I had mentioned briefly, There's a, there are a number of different apps out there. And in the spirit of not getting overwhelmed by media, I... I sort of check out some of the other ones from time to time, but I haven't, I certainly haven't exhaustively explored all the meditation apps because that would probably be a full-time job. Another few that I know about that people have benefited a lot from is there's one called Calm. There's one called Insight Timer. Something that these all have in common is they have different guided meditations as part of the app. And so you can choose, for instance, mindfulness meditation for sleep or for stress or for anxiety or for relationships or for work. And so that's good and interesting. I think that the one that I most frequently go back to is this app called Headspace simply because it's it's very straightforward and direct. 
Um, it's it's well done. The directions are clear and specific. They're not too much. They're not too little. Right. And it's pretty clear when you're doing headspace as an introduction to mindfulness, what to do. Sort of like, okay, do this. Now do this. Now do this. Right. And so it's something that I recommend to just about everyone that I work with. I've used headspace myself from time to time. I, I certainly think that it's valuable on top of that to have some sort of professional uh, psychologist or otherwise, or maybe a medita- some, an experienced meditation teacher to give you some guidance and feedback right. while sort of cultivating a mindfulness practice. Because there can be, you know, it can go in some different directions and be confusing at times. Uh, you know, and at the same time, if there's a single resource that I'm asked to recommend, it's usually headspace. And on top of that, if someone had access to a mindfulness-based stress reduction group with someone who is well-trained in that intervention, mm-hmm. I think that that can also be a very positive experiential introduction to mindfulness practice. Right. And and do you have a number of how much people should be practicing a day, or does it depend? I mean, what are your thoughts? Yeah, one thing that I've heard before, as a, as a behavioral psychologist, one of the things that I'm always thinking about is how do I get people to do stuff? And one of the things that I think is just true about human nature is the less you ask people to do, the more like they do it. Right. <laughs> and so another thing that I've heard before is when people are asked what's the best workout, a response that I really like is that the best workout is the one that you do. Yeah. And, you know, you should start choosing between different workouts if you're someone who seven days a week is going and exercising for an hour or some other perfect amount of time. Right. And then maybe it might make sense to really start thinking about, well, should I do this one or that one? But initially it's really about what, what's the thing you're most likely to do that's most suitable. So again, that with that being said, mindfulness-based stress reduction, beneficial for all kinds of people. You don't have to have a specific problem. It recommends 45 minutes a day, six days a week. I think that that's awesome. I also think that for a lot of people, they're going to balk at that, and that's just going to be completely impractical. Right. So do I think that five minutes is better than zero minutes? Yes. And so if you you just think, well, almost an hour a day is very intimidating, half an hour a day is very intimidating – I've got, you know, everyone has many different responsibilities that are pulling themselves in this this direction and that direction. Right. When it comes to mindfulness, I really believe that something is better than nothing. Um, Absolutely. And if, if, if someone pushes it further, an hour or more a day, then that would be great. But another thing that is more important than how long are you practicing for is how frequently are you practicing for? So I would say five minutes a day is a lot better than 30 minutes once a week. Right. Because you're going to kind of um, continue to get this dose into your day. Right. Rather than have have a big impact and then it sort of gradually fade and by the end of the week have next to nothing. Right. 
Yeah. No, that makes sense. And, and going off of that too, I mean, for people who don't necessarily have the time or, or think they're really busy, can we implement, you know, mindfulness and, and being aware of how we're feeling in our daily routines? Is there a way to do that? Yeah, and I think that's where that's where I would go back to maybe the Headspace app, right? Uh, which I, I think that I think that some of the exercises on it you can actually set the amount of time. Oh, okay. So you can say I want it. I want to do this for five minutes, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, whatever. Right. And you've always got it with you. I know that there's a lot of folks that I work with who are saying they don't have time. Most people can find five minutes with their phone once a day. Absolutely. Uh, you know, most human beings in North America spend five minutes on their phone once a day doing, you know, not that much. So <laughs> I, that's sort of my big nudge for a lot of people is you've got this pretty decent set of directions right there with you all the time. Could you weave it into lunch? Could you weave it in between uh, classes? I work with a lot of police officers. If you have a break between calls, could you weave it in between calls? Right. So sometimes that's not an option, and at the same time, for most people, they can find a bit of time here or there at the beginning of the day, lunch, the end of the day. Right. Well, that makes sense. And my my final question, which is something that, that I'm interested in, and I think that mindfulness meditation really helps with is I've read some research that has shown that trying to get rid of thoughts or emotions makes them stronger. And I would love to hear about the research. I don't know if you've, you've come across this, um, but how we can use mindfulness meditation to, you know, be more aware of our thoughts instead of trying to push against them. Yeah, and this is this is a really important area with mindfulness. And I think that mindfulness in general is a practice, as well as these interventions that have sprung up in the last couple of decades speak to this issue a lot. So there's an intervention called acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, that really talks a lot about the problems with thought suppression. And, you know, some of the other mindfulness-based interventions, whether it be dialectical behavior therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, all have an emphasis on uh, the problem of thought suppression. And so if thought suppression seems like a weird term, you know, if I say, don't think of a pink elephant, it's the first thing that you think about. And so... In order to try to not think about something, you have to think about it. So there's a, there's a paradox there where it's pretty easy to create a thought. So if I say something like, tell me, tell me about what you're planning on doing later today, mm-hmm. you would be able to do that. You would be able to decide and come up with, well, I'm going to be doing this and this and this. But if I say don't think about what you're going to be doing later today. Your attention is going to go to that. It's very, very hard to stop a thought. Right. And so I mentioned this idea a few minutes ago, this idea of changing your relationship with your thoughts. 
And I think that that's a really powerful component of mindfulness where you're not trying to get rid of the thought. So if we go to some thought that would be upsetting for a lot of people, a thought like, I'm a loser. Or, you know, a personal example for me is if I were going to be doing some public speaking and I have the thought right before I'm about to stand up in front of a bunch of people, some thought like, this isn't going to go well. People aren't going to think this is going to be interesting. Right. Um, You know, whatever. And if I have some thought like that come up, which I do, I... I've trained myself to just sort of notice, okay, that's this thought that comes up, which is different from this is true and this is a real problem. Right. So if I'm able to say to myself, okay, well, there are those thoughts that come up right before I'm about to do some public speaking, then it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal when they come up. Right. You know, I can say to myself, well, I'm about to stand up in front of a group of people and this is important. And many people who stand up in front of groups of people sometimes feel anxious. Mm -hmm. And so it's just sort of a a natural part of being a person standing in front of a group of people trying to communicate something that there would be a bit of anxiety. Right. So, okay, no big deal. My brain is coughing this thought up. That thought doesn't have to prevent me from standing up and doing my very best. Right. what I find, what most people find, is when you are, when you're acting in a way consistent with what's important to you, distracting thoughts are less likely to pop up, and when they do mm. pop up, they're, they're less likely to sort of derail you from what is most important. Mm. Interesting. So, another example might be something like, you are, you're in class and you're having, you know, you're taking an exam or the class is really interesting or there's some important reason to stay in the class and you have some thought, I wonder what I'm going to have for lunch or dinner or I'd really like to have lunch or dinner. Having that thought come up does not require you to walk out of the test. Right. It's just a thought that comes up. And everybody kind of intuitively knows this. Like sometimes we have distracting thoughts that we don't act on. And so on a, on a fundamental level, what that really means is that while we can't control our, whether or not we have a thought, we can control whether or not we act on the thought. Right. So the thought, I'm not a good public speaker, does not prevent me from being a good public speaker. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it's just being aware of, of that. It's, it's noticing it and realizing you don't have to make the thought go away. Right. In order, in order to sort of move meaningfully through your life. Right. People will think, people will sometimes think, well, if I have this thought that I wish I weren't going to have, then that's a problem and I have to stop doing this or this. Right. You know, if I, if I have a thought that I can't do this, I can't pass the exam, that that person's not going to like me, that I'm a loser, whatever, then that really is true. Right. And this is, mindfulness offers a different perspective, which says, well, our brains cough up different thoughts all the time. Some of them are pleasant. Some of them are unpleasant. Some of them are neutral. And 
deep down what's really important and meaningful for you to be doing right now, regardless of the thoughts that are coming up. Right. I, I think I think this idea too that our thoughts aren't reality and they're not always true is just something that's really important, really helpful, and really good to be aware of when you're when you're struggling. And I don't think it's something that people really explain to you. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's a, a strong misconception for a lot of people. If I have a certain thought, then that is a problem that has to affect me in a very powerful way. Right. Whereas this different perspective that I'm describing is if I have a certain thought, then I have a certain thought. Absolutely. And, and that doesn't quote unquote mean any more than that. Right. Great. Well, that concludes all my questions. Thanks so much for taking the time to do another interview. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. It is fun to talk about this stuff. I appreciate the interest. Of course. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.